In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajil farajah. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome once again to this latest lecture in our series entitled Life, the Islamic Answer. We began, as you remember, uh, within this longer series, a first topic or a first theme that we're exploring. This one being the theme of knowledge and aql, knowledge and reasoning and intellect in Islam. And um, after spending a little bit of time understanding the importance that our religion gave to both knowledge and aql, we also explored the verses of the Holy Quran to see the justification that our Quran gives to having given this type of importance to these two notions. Why is it that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and in this religion do we give this type of unmatched importance to both knowledge and reason? In the last lecture or the last time that we met, we tried to focus, always looking through the verses of the Holy Quran, we tried to focus on two big points. One of them had to do with the importance or the recognition first of what we may refer to today in a very contemporary language. We may refer to it as expertise or as you know professional qualifications, competence. And we saw that in our religion there is a direct, explicit recognition of this type of expertise. And we went through multiple verses of the Holy Quran in general as well as specifically from the from some of the stories very quickly, some of the stories of the prophets. And we saw that this aspect, this dimension was highlighted, that they specialized in certain areas, certain fields, and they contributed to their societies based on the needs of those societies at that time from that point of view, from the point of view of their expertise and their specialization. And we also saw um, that in general, there is a call in Islam to not only understand and not only appreciate that there are multiple types of fields of science, areas of knowledge that can help a human being get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, realize some of his attributes, his knowledge, his power, his wisdom, his mercy, by looking at the type of world that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created. But beyond that, we saw that there is a direct call in our religion, In the verses of the Holy Quran, clearly, beyond understanding and realizing that there is something exceptional, something miraculous behind these signs, there is also a call to specialize in those fields so that we can understand those signs appropriately. The more you know about the field, 
no matter what field it is. We gave examples from embryology, we gave examples from geology, we gave the example of the bee, and so on and so forth. The more we said someone it becomes an expert in those fields, the more you appreciate what the verses are actually saying, which ultimately, if you're following everything as you're supposed to and understanding things as you're supposed to, this will ultimately bring you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's the ultimate purpose. But we also said that there were, there were intermediary purposes that are being recognized by the verses. This is not something we are imposing ourselves on the verses. We're not saying we think Islam says. It was explicitly stated in the verses that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created everything for you. He has made everything subservient to you. In other words, there is a call not only to understand these things, but to specialize in those fields so that you can control nature, so you can manipulate nature, so you can achieve whatever desires and goals and objectives you may have by understanding how nature works, for instance. And inshallah, we will come back to that later. We also talked about the importance of understanding, for instance, human sciences, humanities. As one example, we spent a bit more time on history. And we said we'll come back to that, inshallah, in a few lectures. We'll come back to the importance of history and why, why is, that, is there so much focus on the verses of the Holy Quran about it. And you see that many civilizations have given huge importance to history, to spending time studying previous civilizations, previous nations, to see what can I learn from them so that I don't make their mistakes. Our religion says to do that on its own. It did not wait for 16th century Europe to start understanding that history is a field. No, no, we saw in the verses of the Holy Quran, go, go and travel and look into the previous civilization, see how they lived, understand how they lived, how much more powerful they were than you are, and what was their, the cause of their rising, and what was the cause of their decline. There's a point here that the Holy Quran keeps emphasizing. So inshallah, we'll come back to those points. And at the same time, inshallah, you also appreciate that there's certainly, uh, I think from my point of view, what we're trying to do here is, is perhaps not presented in this way. This is not kind of conventional, traditional, following a classical curriculum. And so there are things that we're trying to highlight as we go along, but there are also a lot of things we're going very fast, and in part, in part, you get the impression that we're going fast because we're not spending a lot of time on every angle and every point that we can highlight from the hadith that we're going through and from the verses of the Holy Quran. We're hoping through this that we highlight the main principles, the main applicable teachings. We're not taking ready-made answers from these. We're extracting principles that you then can apply. And how you're going to see how these apply may be different from how I see that they apply. You're going to look at it, you're going to come at it from your world, from your point of view, from your needs, from the problems that you're confronted with, to see how do I apply these principles. But this means that you can apply it to a thousand different cases, as opposed to taking a ready answer that applies only to that one specific case, and then you need to come back and ask questions and understand what's the answer for that next question. So we're trying to go more generic 
it's a little bit more work on your side. There's a lot more thinking and analysis, constant thinking and rethinking involved. But inshallah, the outcome is that you have a much better appreciation of what we refer to in the beginning as the spirit of the religion. So what we wanted to do, to do today is that we now look at the other side. Before we do a deeper dive into these two notions that we presented, so Islamic knowledge and Islamic reason, and we are going to do a deeper dive. Before we do that and get into the details, we wanted to see, and this can serve as a context and kind of a link between what we're going to do next and what we've done until now, is to look at the other side. The other side being Jah. The other side being the opposite. So Islam had a lot to say, as we saw, about knowledge. And Islam had a lot to say about reason. Did, did it leave the opposite notion to these? Did it leave it under silence or did it also say things about it? Because if it does, it means that it's adding a lot more rigor. It doesn't leave anything undefined. It's defining the entire space. From the beginning we said there's only going to be, there are not, you know, two, three, four, five different alternatives here. There are only two. You are either in light or in darkness. You are either in knowledge or you're not. You're either in apple or you're not. So now we're, we want to look at the not. What did Islam say about this? So that the choice becomes clearer. And the action that we have to take has to become clearer. And this is something that I've talked about multiple times, that sometimes we may think the options are that you do something, something good, or you do something negative, bad, or you do nothing, so you stay neutral. And I've tried to emphasize this point that there is no neutral. Neutral does not exist. Everything, everything that you think Everything that you do, everything that you say is a step towards either one direction or the other. There's nothing in between heaven and hell and the afterlife. You can't be neutral. There is no indifferent. The indifferent ultimately is falling in one or the other. And so this is what we have to keep in mind when we look at this. And so we want to now look at the other side. And we won't spend too much time on this. I don't know how much we can fit into today's lecture. And maybe so. Maybe one more lecture, inshallah, we can wrap this up. But I think it's important that we spend a little bit of time making that connection and understanding the opposite view, the opposite notion. So one way to understand jahl is to say that jahl, and I think this is for the majority of us, this is the first thought that comes to mind when we hear the word jahl. We think about not knowing, so ignorance, lack of knowledge. What we're going to see is that the way the Holy Quran uses the term, and we're probably not going to get to the verses today, but certainly in the hadith as well, you're going to see that jahl is a broader meaning, a broader notion in Islam than just not knowing. And that's why initially when I presented knowledge, I said there's knowledge, and there is reason. There's aql. Jahl is in opposition to both. So there is a lack of knowledge. Yes, that is jahl. And we'll see it goes beyond that. It's very comprehensive. 
And it also includes the lack of aql, the lack of reasoning, the lack of wisdom, you know, acting foolish, foolishly, lack of judgment. All of that you're going to see in how jahl is used. And so you will see that the notion goes beyond just not knowing. And it's a much richer and deeper notion than, you know, the first thought that comes to mind when we think of the word jahl. The other point I think is that, and I think it's important to mention here very quickly, so that you have it in mind as we go through the hadith, is that jahl, the notion of jahl, when it applies both to knowledge and to aql, to reason, is not going to be limited to the things that are major, you know, life or death decisions. One way to understand it is to look at the very significant, important, crucial, you know, elements of our lives. Absolutely. But we also need to look at it from the point of view of our day-to-day -day living. It does apply. Perhaps the effects are not going to be as significant. The repercussions are not going to be as significant. But with time, you'll see that, and this is a notion that will come up today, inshallah we get to it, the habit forming, the general outlook and attitude. How do you carry yourself day in and day out? Yes, maybe you. there is no foolishness and there is no lack of aql and no lack of knowledge when it comes, inshallah, for all of us, when it comes to making you know a crucial life decision, something that could change your life one way or another, that will give a lot of direction to how your life is going to unfold. You're going to spend time, you're going to think about it, you're going to ask questions, you're going to try to make the right decision. And you're going to consider that seriously. And you're going to try to commit to it and go through with it. But what about the day-to-day? -day? And this is where you see it unfold, this notion of jahl. So I would ask you not to think only about it at the level of those crucial moments in life, but the day-to-day unfolding. You see it all around us. You see people, for instance, acting foolishly. You see people taking unwarranted or unnecessary risks. Sometimes it's just to get a laugh. Is it worth it or not? And in those cases, if we can, this is where this notion has to come back in our mind. To say and to see, are we applying it? How far are we? in jahl versus knowledge or jahl versus aql in the day-to-day -day as well and how we behave and how we think in our habits and our customs and our friends and our families and how we approach life and this is not to say that you know there is no place for you know relaxing or humor or 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 and i think inshallah that should become clear enough what we're talking about here and inshallah maybe one day if you guys feel that this is a important issue to address that we can dedicate a lecture to how there is humor in our religion that's absolutely not the issue okay the other point so maybe I, I'm not going to spend too much time anymore on the on the lack of aql but for the lack of knowledge you will also notice that there is a push and an importance given 
and our religion, it's not only that you know, it's that you take the required steps to move in the direction of knowing. And you're going to see that in the hadith. That you're supposed to remove, recognize the barriers to getting to the knowledge and remove them. Some of them are external and some of them are internal to us. Do you have the right attitude or are you too arrogant to learn? Do you have the modesty that it takes to recognize I made a mistake? And so you take the advice when it's given to you. You recognize your strengths but also your weaknesses. And then ultimately, I think underlying all of this, inshallah, it doesn't apply to anyone here. But you see that there are people who don't seem to give any importance to wanting to improve. There are people who, when you talk to them, they give you the impression that they're very happy and content with who they are, what they are. And perhaps in today's culture, there is even a push for that. You know, just accept yourself as you are. Well, that may apply to certain things, but it doesn't apply to other things. If you can improve on anything, why wouldn't you improve? And there are things that I think we need to improve on because those things are the ones that define our humanity. It says how human you are. It says how God is going to be happy with you or not. Someone who seems to give the impression that, you know, I'm just happy with the level of knowledge I have. I don't feel like I need to know more. And this is the question that I'd like to keep coming back to in our discussions if possible. What is enough knowledge to you? One, in general, and two, in today's world. What does it look like? Because that may be a notion that's relative. It's a notion that depends on the context you're in, and the society you're in, and the world you're in. How much knowledge do you need today to get by? To keep your identity, to understand what's going on in the world, to fit the bill so that with yourself, just you alone, in your own mind, in your own heart, you consider yourself as living Islamically. You know, you're, min you're meeting the minimal threshold. So what is that minimal threshold? What does it look like? One way to look at it is, you know, you apply it to yourself. Another way to look at it is to think, you know, how, how would you raise your children? Or if we could, as a community, work on these notions, how do we deal with them? So what is that minimal threshold? Is it acceptable today? When does it become acceptable, if ever, for someone to say, I'm good with the knowledge that I have? I don't need to spend time and energy and money and invest in trying to learn more. You know, our religion says be good and I'm good. And I know generally speaking what there is to know and I do it and I know the wajibat and I pray and I fast and that's it. That's what there is to it. Is it or is there more? And what is that more? What does that look like? And so this is where I would also invite you to think about this notion of jahr. This is a relative notion. It's a sliding scale. You have to see when does it apply or not? Does it apply to you? Do you ever, do ever fall into this attitude? Because there's something of a laziness or this constant postponement, right? Maybe not now. Maybe I'll have time later. Maybe if I feel like I need to, then I'll go look up the topic I need to. It may be true or not. All I'm saying is you need to think about it. It needs to be something you have thought about 
and made some maybe conscious decisions about so that you're not just going with the flow and you know passively reacting to whatever life throws your way okay so you know i i won't spend any too much time on this but i do think that when you have those people whether you do it to yourself someone who says i don't want to grow i don't want to learn i'm good where i am and so to a certain extent they are accepting that they are now personifying jahl that we're going to be talking about those people are harmful to themselves fine that's a personal choice but i would argue that they're also harmful to everyone around them you don't live in a vacuum you're going to affect one way or another you are going to affect your family and one way or another you are going to affect people in your community in your surroundings your friends society at large so there is an additional responsibility to keep in mind and then finally and ultimately is it always just our call is it always just a matter of personal what i feel like doing does everything come back to that notion or is there somewhere some sort of duty that once you recognize the truth or you recognize the good is there not a duty that comes with that now that you do know you do know that you're supposed to learn does it stop there or does this not mean you have to do something okay so i leave that with you inshallah you keep it in mind and i think we can start with uh, some of the ahadith so we have a first hadith here from from Imam Ali salam if I can open them we have a first hadith from Imam Ali salam in which he says الجهل في الإنسان أضر من الآكلة في البدن ignorance in a human being so again please I'm going to use the word ignorance to refer to jahl in general but as I said you can't equate this notion of ignorance with the ones that we typically think of which is lack of knowledge it includes both knowledge and aql knowledge and thinking knowledge and deep reflection he says al-jahl fil insan adarru min al-akilati fil badan al-akilati fil badan basically means kind of like a flesh eating bacteria there's something gnawing eating eroding your being from the inside killing you one one little piece at a time he says jahl ignorance is like the flesh-eating bacteria in a human being it, there's something that is just making parts of you disappear parts of you die if you let ignorance stay in another narration he says ignorance is a da is a sickness is an illness Aya basically is a, a chronic disease, a, a, an incurable disease, a disease that stays. So this is not to adopt a defeatist attitude and say, you know, this is incurable in the medical sense. We're going to see some of that. But it does mean that we have to be very careful not to allow jahl to become our normal state. Because the Imam is saying there is, we're kind of, as human beings, we're predisposed to that. If you let this ignorance settle in and come in, 
This is by default who you're going to be. It's a disease, but it's a disease that doesn't go away easily. You're stuck with it now, so good luck. So yes, once it's there, you have to recognize how difficult it is to get rid of it, and so therefore put in the work, one. And two, do everything you can to prevent it from happening in the first place, that you never default and fall back into an attitude, an outlook, and a way of living where ignorance is just part of it, with, with jet, where jail is just part of it. In a third hadith, very similar, al-jahlu, adwa basically means the worst of, the, the, the disease or the illness that causes the most harm. In another hadith, again from Ali salam, he says, Al-Jahl Matiyatun Shamus. Matiyatun is an animal that you ride. Shamus is stubborn. It's, the, it's a reference to the, the horse that refuses that their back be ridden by anyone. Okay, Man Rakibaha Zal, Waman Sahibaha Bal. So if you ride on the ignorance, on this animal that is extremely stubborn, difficult to ride, Man Rakibaha Zal. You will slip, you will fall, you will make mistakes. And if you stay close to it, this becomes your companion. You get lost. You, you, you lose your way. This is not an animal that you can ride and it will bring you safely to your destination. Okay? And another hadith. And so obviously, inshallah, you make the, the clear linkages here between the first ones we said, even this one. The, the, the association or the constant link between ignorance and it leads to mistakes, it needs to loss, it needs to confusion. Al-jahl yuzillul qadam. So ignorance makes the, the foot slip. You're never on strong footing. Al-jahl mumitul ahya wa shaqa. Ignorance kills life or kills the living. It puts living things to death. So, of course, the Imam here he's not talking about the biological life, right? There's something that we've referred to in the past as being life. We said life was referred to as al-ilm, al-ma'rifah, and al-aql, right? And now here he's saying al-jahl mumitul ahya. You allow jahl to start penetrating into an area, into a person, into a community, into a society, it only leads to death. And وَمُخَلِّدُ الشَّقَاءِ What's shaqa? Shaqa can be misery, shaqa can be evil, shaqa can be corruption, injustice, oppression, all of that can be translated as shaqa. وَمُخَلِّدُ الشَّقَاءِ Once you allow ignorance to settle, you are ensuring that shaqa, this misery and oppression and injustice, is going to be everlasting. It's going to be enduring. It eternalizes shaqa. It allows shaqa to stay. Now, now, look at a society. We've talked in the past about how certain civilizations rise and how certain civilizations fall. Here the Imam is saying, you allow ignorance to come somewhere, it's going to die. It causes death. It causes decline. It causes the end of it. 
And so long as it stays, so if you have a society or a community or a nation or civilization where there is shaqa, where there are things that people consider to be discomfort, there are things that cause misery, injustice, oppression. One of the first things you need to look at if you want to fight that oppression and that injustice, you have to fight, you have to eradicate jahl. You have to eradicate ignorance. So long as ignorance is there, no matter what you're doing on the side to try to combat the issue, Imam Ali salam says, there's something happening that's much stronger that's ensuring that it eternalizes this state. That this state never goes away. This state of misery and oppression. Which is what? Which is ignorance. The first step is ignorance. Deal with the ignorance first. And then deal with the rest. The next hadith says, these are more general hadith. One of them says, Al-Jahl yufsidu al-ma'ad. Ignorance corrupts the afterlife. So basically, you're ruining your afterlife by accepting ignorance. Al-Jahl fasadu kulli amr. It's the corruption of every affair, of everything. Another general one, Al-Jahl aslu kulli shar. Al-Jahl, ignorance is the root of every harm or every evil. These are more general ones. The Holy Prophet says, مَا أَعَزَّ اللَّهُ بِجَهْلٍ قَطْلٍ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Holy Prophet says, has never granted might, has never granted or given power through jahl. So this is going to apply to a person, it's going to apply to a community, it's going to apply to a society. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not going to give might or power or dignity or nobility or superiority if there is jahl. Where there is jahl, there is not going to be might and power. A key or a principle that the Holy Prophet just gives us. Now you can go back and apply it. Apply it to history. Apply it to ourselves. Apply it to specific people you look at. If they rise, how much ignorance is there? Is there ignorance in the area that they rise in or not? So you want to rise? Focus on combating jahl. Imam al-Askari and I would say, that, so this is one good conclusion from everything we've said until now. Imam al-Askari he simply says, Al-Jahlu Khasm. Ignorance is an enemy or the enemy, I would say. So therefore, ignorance is the enemy. Deal with ignorance as an enemy. How would you deal with an enemy? Ignorance is the enemy. Imam Ali salam says, Al-Hirsu, and here we see some of the consequences. And you'll see that the hadith are, are scattered. Some of them are more focused on the consequences, some of them are more focused on the, the root causes and the different types of jahl. Imam Ali salam says, Al-Hirsu wa-sharahu wal-bukhlu natijatul jahl. Al-Hirs is what? Al-Hirs is the obsessive, compulsive desire that human beings have to keep and to care about the things that they have and to acquire more of them. 
Pardon me? It could be like OCD, but applied to life as an outlook on life. This is hirs. This is excessive caring about the world. Caring about your life, about the details of your life, about what's going to happen tomorrow, you're going to have anxiety about it, what's going to happen after, how much money do I have today in the bank, how much will I have tomorrow, what does my house look like. What? This is all called hirs. There's a lot, there's a whole literature in our hadith about the notion of hirs. We'll come back to it. The other one, they're all tied. You see the imam is splitting them up into three. Al, he says, Al-Hirs wa-Sharah. Al-Sharah, a close notion to it is like the, the notion of gluttony. Where you have an insatiable hunger and thirst. You drool over things and you want to acquire them. That's Sharah. You blindly and, you know, uh, unwittingly and you just go after things that you want and you just want more of them you can't stop yourself so take the, the notion gluttony really applies to food and drink but now apply it to everything else people who just can't control themselves when there's anything that they want this covetousness and then the last one is al-bukhl bukhl is just stinginess greed now that you own the thing you never want to let it go. And sometimes this applies to everyone. It just depends what are the things that you can let go and what, what are the things you don't let go. Right? That's why the verse in the Quran says, البر, You do not reach righteousness or the level of true virtue. البر, تنفقوا, the, the verse doesn't stop there. It doesn't say until you spend from what you have. It's not just حتى تنفقوا. حتى تنفقوا مما تحبون. Until that, until you give from that which you love. What is it that you love most? Because it might be very different than someone else. And how able are you to let go of that thing which you love? And this allows us to really understand a lot of things in our religion. It's not just giving. There's a quality to the giving. What are you giving? What does it say about your character? If you don't really care about money and you have some of it and you give, Maybe that's not the most difficult giving for you. Maybe there's something else that you care more about. We have many narrations where, instance, we have some of our imams, Imam al-Hassan for instance, when he would give, when he would walk around and he would give, one of the things that he gave a lot was al-shahid al-muzafar, which is honey with zafran in it, saffron in it. Why? Because he loved it. He loved the taste of honey with zafran. So he never tasted it. When he would talk about it and he was asked, he would say, I, I don't keep any of it to myself because I love it. So I must give it all away. This is what I love. And there are many narrations around that. What is it that you love? How willing are you when you reach that thing which you love? Do you now keep it to yourself greedily? Or do you give it away? Imam Ali السلام, says these three qualities we just mentioned, al-hirs, wal-sharah, wal-bukhl, they all stem from one root, which is jahl, which is ignorance. Okay, and so when you put all the hadith, this becomes a logical conclusion, but on its own, this becomes a, a whole lesson, okay, on what this means. Of course, they stem from ignorance. They stem from things that mean that you are ignorant. You don't understand when these things are, that you're coveting, that you're being stingy about, in any case.
Next hadith, there's a dua attributed to Imam Ali alayhi salam. And of course here we, we don't believe that the Imam here, he's talking about sins when you see the dua about himself. But at his level, this is what the, the language that he uses, but it applies to us. He says in his dua, أَنَا الْجَاهِلُ أَصَيْتُكَ بِجَهْلِ He talks to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He says, I am the ignorant. So this is all about the notion of ignorance. I am the, the one who is ignorant. Why? أَصَيْتُكَ بِجَهْلِ I have disobeyed you. So now the first item, the first insistence is on disobedience. Disobeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. أَصَيْتُكَ بِجَهْلِ Because of my ignorance or through my ignorance, I disobeyed you. And I committed the sins, which is different from disobedience, and I committed the sins because of my ignorance. Basically, this life has become something that amuses me or distracts me or entertains me. Why? Because I am ignorant, because I have ignorance. The less ignorance you have, the, the less distracted you're going to be. وَسَهَوْتُ عَنْ ذِكْرِكَ بِجَهْلِ So again, I have become heedless or neglectful of remembering you, of your remembrance, because of my jahl, my ignorance. وَرَكَنْتُ إِلَى الدُّنْيَا بِجَهْلِ Rakentu is not just like I lean to. Sometimes they, they say it's, it's not I lean to. It's that I become trustful of this world. I rely on this world. As though this world is something that you can expect tomorrow to be like it was yesterday. As though this world, you know, you can control it. And you can decide, you know, I put in this work, I get this outcome, so on and so forth. This is not how the world works. And this is forgetting that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is managing all of these affairs of the world. So reliance on this world and forgetting there is Allah, this is what the Imam says. I have relied on this world through my ignorance. So that's the ignorance part in these ahadith. And then in another narration, Imam Ali salam says, This is a magnificent narration. He says, If only the servants when they ignore something, when they have no knowledge of something, they would stop, then what would be the result? There would be no disbelief. You would not have anyone who becomes a disbeliever. And there would be no misguidance. There would be no loss, confusion, not knowing where you're going or you're doing it all wrong. And so this highlights a lot of things I think we talked when we talked about both knowledge and aql. We said the importance of Imam Ali alayhi salam, we say, we say again and again, he doesn't accept the superficial level of understanding or thinking, right? We saw that in multiple narrations from the ones that we looked at. He wants knowledge to be deep knowledge. Not only being able to repeat the knowledge. You have to show that you're one of those who can take care of the knowledge. That's one. And when he talked about aql, the same thing. You know, for instance, when he says aql is not just knowing, distinguishing wrong and right. It's recognizing 
the best option when it's all wrong, when it's all evil and when it's all harm, you're able to still find the better, the better option or the best option in that. Right? So we see that again and again. And here, the Imam السلام, is looking at it from another angle. And we talked about it when we said, for instance, when you listen, whatever you're listening to, when you read whatever you're reading, whatever you're letting in as an input, be careful that this is truth. And if it is not, وَقَفُوا Your alarm bells should go on. Your filters should be up. You have to make sure, what are you letting in? Are you ready for this? Can you deal with it? Can you assess its truth or not? And the same thing if you're the one talking. Have you made sure of what you're saying? So if you remember in the hadith, we talked about all of that. So here again, we're looking at it now from the aspect of jahl. The Imam says, لَوْ أَنَّ الْعِبَادَ حِينَ جَهِلُوا وَقَفُوا If the servants, when they lack the knowledge, they would stop, they would cease, say, okay, that's all I know. The rest is conjecture. The rest, the rest is an unknown. I still have doubts about this. Lem yakfuru. This would not, this would lead to them never becoming disbelievers because you don't know. So you stop. You don't say, I have become a disbeliever and I reject the truth. You say, I don't know. And there is no valala. Walam yavillu. They would not get confused or misguided. Maybe we can go a little bit further. Here we have a, a number of hadith. I'm just looking at the time and whether we continue, we stop here. Let's look at a few hadith and then we, uh, we stop. Three notions in these ahadith, and we won't have time to go through them, but I kind of packaged them together. The first notion is the notion or the importance of discipline. From these ahadith, we're going to see, so that I don't repeat it for the ahadith, you're going to see the importance given to discipline. Discipline in general and self-discipline. The ability to control yourself, whether you like it or not. That when you know something is true, or when you know something is good, you don't just let your desires take over. You don't let your whims take over. You make sure that what is in control is your reason. You don't let the other faculties come in. Their purpose is not here. So you keep them in check. That's one. The second notion here is the notion of humility. And this is a huge notion in our religion. That when you make a mistake, you recognize that there's a mistake that's been made. This is a very practical consequence of it. But this stems from a humility in general. We wouldn't need to be talking about this if in the first place people were humble and modest, generally speaking, and how they behave. You know your worth. You know your value. So you do not underestimate yourself. You don't lack confidence. You know who you are, what you stand for. But at the same time, you don't overestimate. This doesn't lead into arrogance. This doesn't lead into pride. This doesn't lead into rejecting the truth or rejecting the advice that comes your way, or no longer recognizing when you make a mistake, right? And so all of this is important, and the reason why we're talking about it is these are going to become, and we're going to come back to them later. 
These are going to become the major obstacles. We're going to talk about which knowledge. We've talked about why the knowledge and which knowledge, but we want to make sure that there are no barriers so that we can get to the knowledge. And part of these barriers, as, as we said, are internal. And so here we have some narrations that talk about this. And then finally, the idea of growth. There's, you will see in these hadith, there's an underlying assumption that we constantly need to be in a mode where you're constantly open to growing, to improving. You should not be content with your level and where you are. And that's why I introduced the topic today with some remarks and with some comments about applying knowledge and applying aql, but never really accepting the level that we're at and making sure that we're constantly growing and improving. Unless any of us can justify that, they feel that they have reached the satisfactory level and that they have met at least the minimal threshold and that they're safe and good. So let's go through some of the hadith here very quickly. Imam says, Al-Jahil, so you'll notice that all of these hadith, they begin with Al-Jahil. They're describing the person who is ignorant. Okay, but I try to look at it from those themes. Al-Jahil la ya'rifu taqseerah. He does not know or does not realize his own shortcomings, the Jahil. Wala yaqbilu min al-nasihilah. And he does not accept the advice that comes his way. He doesn't recognize his own shortcomings. And when advice is given, he doesn't accept it. In another hadith, Al-Jahil la yartada'. Yartada', you know, you back off. You back away. You made a mistake and you saw that it's a mistake. You back off. There's clearly a problem here. There's a risk. There's an issue. Go back. No. Al-Jahil la yartada'. When advice is given or when lessons are right in front of him, they're useless. He does not benefit from advice and from lessons, from the mistakes of others, for instance. Another narration says, The ignorant person, يستوحش is to be repelled, you know, to feel estranged, to feel alienated by. You fear, you don't like, you feel discomfort from something. يستوحش الجاهل يستوحش مما يأنس به الحكيم The wise person, he finds certain things comforting. He finds peace in them. He finds tranquility in them, comfort in them. Al-Jahil, the ignorant, finds those same things repulsive. He feels, as we said, estranged, alienated, fearful, apprehensive from those things which the wise person considers to be their, his comfort or her comfort. So this is an extremely important point that allows us to understand why people react differently to the same thing. Everybody's looking at the same reality. Yet each person is dealing with it in a very different way. In part, or in very large part, it has to do with your level of knowledge and your level of aql. It completely changes your outlook on life. That which someone is going to consider 
comforting and it will give them great pleasure. Someone else is going to find that repulsive and is uh, feeling estranged from it, alienated from it. And of course, there's a lot that we can say here, but you know, like this could apply to humor. It could apply to the importance you give to things. It could apply. There's going to be other ahadith that come back to talk about this same point, and you'll see it. But this is a very, very important, uh, very rich, I think, notion. How much importance do you give to things, therefore? Because you find them comforting. And that thing which someone else might find very difficult, you find very easy to do. Because you have this hikmah, and they don't. Or the opposite. You find it very difficult, and you want to do it, but it's so difficult, and that other person is just doing it so easily. Why? What, what's the key? What is the missing ingredient that if only you had it, then you could do that and you could probably do better and more? Okay? In another narration, he says, Al-jahil sakhratun la ma'uha. The person who is ignorant is like a rock whose water does not gush forth. Another example, another analogy he gives, وَشَجَرَةٌ لَا And a tree whose branches never turn green. Or, last one, وَأَرْضٌ لَا And a land whose plantation never grows, never appears. So basically, in short, all of these analogies, all of these examples, metaphors, is to say, do not expect any good to come out of the person who is ignorant. To the extent that there is jahl, do not expect anything good to come out of it. We'll see that some ahadith are even more explicit than that. They're going to take it to a step further. Okay? So in case, so if this applies to someone, and you see that no good should be expected of anyone, so long as they are in the state of ignorance, then obviously the opposite is if you want any good to come out, you have to remove the jahl, you have to remove the ignorance. Another narration says, Al-jahil, maybe I'm going to stop here. Al-jahil man khada'athul matalib. Al-jahil is the person who is tricked, who is duped by issues. Matalib could be very Literally, it could mean, you know, requests or asks or... But generally speaking, a matlab is a mas'ala, is a, an affair, an issue, a thing that happens. Someone who is easily tricked can only be ignorant. And so, in fact, he defines the ignorant person that way. Al-jahil man matalib. You can easily trick them. And we're going to see a lot more ahadith about this. And this is one of the key, inshallah, it will be clear to you, but one of the key points I want to get to from this entire series. This importance of thinking, but not thinking superficially. Thinking deep. Thinking critically. Being always in a state of awareness that you are going beyond the surface level knowledge that you are looking into things at a deeper level. This is what our religion expects. In fact, I would argue, and inshallah I leave that to you, I would argue that a religion in large part is a type of 
intellectual revolution to not accept things at face value. The deeper you go in our religion and the more you understand what the Holy Prophet did at that time with the advent of Islam and what the Imams did during their lifetimes and what they struggled with and what they constantly tried to make people realize through everything that they did, including the way they lived their lives, is that you cannot accept things at face value. And this is why we, we spend so much time studying the lives of the Imams. We're usually not going because we don't have time. We're usually limited in time. We don't have time to go through the more classic, traditional version of history. But in a lot of cases, the way the Imams lived and their teachings during their times were a reaction to what was going on in their times to make people realize that they cannot just take whatever is being said about the Imams, about Islam, about the world at face value. That you need to be a lot more critical. There is a lot more going on here than what may look like is happening at face value, at a superficial level. Right? So, when you see a hadith that says, Al Jahil man al-Matalib, it's not as simple as, you know, someone who's easily tricked is a Jahil and it stops there. We need to see what this means. And what does it mean today? What does it mean for me as a person? What does it mean for us as people who live in a nation? What does it mean for humanity today? Al-Jahil man al-Matalib. How does this apply to us? Where is the trickery that is happening? Who is being tricked? Who is tricking and who is being tricked? In what way? Right? All of this has to be part of how we think if we are to really live by these principles. So I'll stop here to leave a little bit of time for a discussion since we haven't had one in a couple of lectures. But I thought if you give me a few minutes also to provide a quick overview of the life of Imam Al-Hadi salam. So please do a loud salawat and then we begin insha'Allah. A'udhu Billah Minash Shaitan Ar-Rajeem Bismillah Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim In the name of God, most beneficent, most merciful And may God's peace and blessings be upon His Holy Prophet Muhammad and the purified members of His household and progeny Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad In a few days we have some reports that say that it will be the birth anniversary of Imam Al-Hadi Imam Ali ibn Muhammad Al-Hadi most likely was born in the month of Rajab but some reports say that he may have been also born in the month of Dhul-Hajjah so because this will be taking place in a few days I thought that I'd at least provide a quick overview of the life of Imam al-Hadi especially since we don't seem to have a lot of opportunities to talk about Imam al-Hadi We mentioned some points very, very quickly related to Imam al-Hadi when we recently talked about his own father, Imam al-Jawad So you will, inshallah, remember some of those and we will build on them.
Imam al-Hadi was born in year 212 and maybe year 214 of the Hijrah and he passed away year 254 of the Hijrah which means that he lived depending on if you're looking at the Gregorian or the Hijri calendar he lived around 40 years 42 years according to the 212 Hijri and the Hijri calendar in Gregorian years it would be around 40 this already should raise some sort of issue when we look at the life of someone like Imam al-Hadi and we see that unless there is some very good reason why someone passes away at that age generally speaking people live longer especially people who like our Imams they were very healthy they had a very healthy lifestyle today people who live this way they naturally die of you know, old age well into their 80s and their 90s and even more and it was not that uncommon at that time we have many companions many of the people of the time who lived way beyond the 100 and perhaps even to the 150 and more years of age and yet we notice someone like Imam al-Hadi passing away around 40 in fact if we go through the lives of Ahlul Bayt starting from Imam Ali all the way to Imam Al-Askari, our 11th Imam we notice that there is a general and steady decline in the average ages of the Imams except for a few exceptions such as for instance Imam Sadiq because the circumstances of his life were very different this is where we talked about as you remember there was a transition between the Amawi rulership, Khilafah, the dynasty of Bani Umayyah, the Umayyad, and Bani al-Abbas who are coming in, the Abbasids. That turmoil gave a lot more time and a lot more room for Imam Sadiq to act and to maneuver. And you also see it in his own lifespan, that he was able to live a little bit longer. So he was into his 60s. But generally speaking, if you look at the lives of all the Imams, there's a steady trend of decrease in their age until you reach the last three Imams that we've been talking about our ninth, tenth and eleventh Imams and all of them they died even younger than the previous Imams see Imam Jawad he died about 25 years old Imam Al-Hadi was around 40 Imam Al-Askari was about 28 years old we haven't talked about him until now but generally speaking if you look at these lifespans it's almost shocking especially given the lifestyles that we know about the Imams that someone would die at this age and so obviously what we need to add into it and to understand this is the type of difficulties these Imams were going through the lifestyles that they had and eventually the, their outcomes and how they were killed how they were assassinated there is something unnatural happening here for these Imams to die in general uh, specifically and in general it's an indication that as difficult as things may have been for Imam al-Sajjad or Imam al-Baqir the political and social context of Imam al-Jawad, Imam al-Hadi and Imam al-Askari were much more difficult
And so this is reflected in their age and reflected in how the rulers of the time dealt with them. So that where there might have been a bit more leniency in previous generations, there was none for them. And so the first opportunity they had to get rid of them, they did. And that's why these imams die right away in a very young age. So that was the, the, the first point. The second point is Imam al-Hadi The nickname that he had from his own father, Imam al-Jawad he nicknamed him at a very young age, and we're going to talk about that in a second. At a very young age, he nicknamed him Abu al-Hasan. And so some say, and there are some reports to this effect, that this was to continue the memory of their own grandfather and their own great-grandfather, Imam al-Rida and Imam al-Kadhim Imam al both of them were referred to as Abu al-Hasan. Imam al-Kadhim, Imam al-Rida and Imam al-Hadi. They are called Abu al-Hasan. So this is why in some of the books of narrations, when they say Qala Abu al-Hasan, sometimes they say Qala Abu al-Hasan al-Awwal, Qala Abu al-Hasan al-Thani, Qala Abu al-Hasan al-Thalith or al-Akhir or al-Akhir, meaning Imam al-Hadi being the third Abu al-Hasan. And this is something, in fact, that we see all of the Imams doing. So it would not be you know, far-fetched to argue that there is some sort of istihbab to nickname the child, not only to give them a beautiful name, as the Holy Prophet says, one of the rights of your child over you is that you give them a beautiful name to be called by, but also to nickname them. This adds to the affection and the love and the respect that the child feels you are giving them. Okay, to have a nickname to the child and even at a young age. So we know that Imam al-Jawad left this world and Imam al-Hadi was between seven and eight years old. So he was certainly nicknamed before. And we even have narrations, Imam al-Hussein he would sit in the lap of the Holy Prophet and he would refer to him as Abu Abdullah. Abu Abdullah al-Hussein, and he was still a child. So as I said, this is a trend that the Imams did with all of their children. So this is one thing to perhaps keep in mind. The Imam also had a number of other nicknames, one of them being Al-Naqi. So oftentimes you will hear Al-Naqi. It's a reference to Imam al-Hadi And the other is sometimes they refer to him as Al-Askari. So we usually call Imam Al-Hasan Ibn Ali Al-Askari. His father was also referred to as Imam Al-Askari. But Imam Al our 11th Imam is more known for that nickname. And while the other nicknames are, are beautiful and they all of them highlight different aspects of the lives of the Imams, Al-Askari does not highlight any of those. It highlights the fact that they lived in under house arrest in a city that was basically nothing but a military camp. They were brought from wherever they were. So in the case of Imam al-Hadi he was brought from al-Medina to be basically imprisoned in the city of Samarra, which was not really a residential city. It was a military city. It was a city where the army, one of the armies of the Khalifa of the time resided. 
And so this is to keep a very close watch on the Imam by basically making them live on what we would call today a military camp. And that's why he was referred to as Al-Askari. So this happened with Imam Al-Hadi and Imam Al-Askari, his son, continued to live in Samarwa. So this is where he was and where he spent his whole life. So the father of our Imam, Imam Muhammad Al-Jawad as you remember, our 10th Imam, making Imam Al-Hadi making Imam Al-Hadi our 10th Imam. Imam Al-Jawad was our 9th Imam. Muhammad Al-Jawad and Ali Al-Hadi our 10th Imam. His mother, we mentioned her very quickly last time, Sumana, Sumana al-Maghribiya. Pious woman, praised by the Imams. Unfortunately, even her, funny enough, we have some historians who have tried to say that she was Umm al-Fadl. So whether there is a confounding confusion, confusion between the names or not, if you remember when we talked about the life of Imam al-Jawad we said that al-Ma'mun basically forced him to marry his daughter. The daughter of al-Ma'mun's name was Umm al-Fadl. And she even wrote to her father before he, he died, complaining that the Imam does not love her as much as he loves this other woman that was nowhere near her nobility and her status. She was a woman brought from somewhere in Africa, but the Imam seemed to love her and praise her. And she was the one who carried the son of the Imam, Suman. So Umm al-Fadl was not happy with that. So she was writing to her father who basically dismissed it and didn't deal with that. He ignored it. But you see later historians have come to say that the mother of Imam al-Hadi is Umm al-Fadl, the daughter of al-Ma'mun, which is exactly what he had tried to do when he said, I want to be the grandfather of an Imam or a member of the household of the Holy Prophet. In any case, the, the, the Abbasids invested a lot of money writing history. One day, inshallah, we'll talk about the historians who were working for the Abbasids and basically how most, if not all, of Islamic history is written by historians who were salaried and employed by the Abbasid rulers. Inshallah, we'll talk about that. So in any case, this is the, the father and the mother of our Imam. His Imamah, as we said, began at a very young age. He was perhaps around four or five years old when his father would have left in Medina, uh, Al-Munawwara. So he basically, Imam Al-Jawad went back with Umm Al-Fadl to, to, uh, to Baghdad. And Sumana and her son, Imam Al-Hadi he stayed behind with her in Al-Madina Al-Munawwara, and his father was killed, was poisoned, Imam Al-Jawad was poisoned, and the Imam was around seven or eight years old, which means that at that time, he became the Imam. Naturally, someone would say, this would become something controversial. But as we alluded to last time, because of everything that happened in the time of Imam Al-Jawad around his own Imam when he was between eight and nine years old, when he became an Imam, and all of that was settled, and it was not that long ago, since Imam al-Jawad passes away and he's around 25 years old, people still have understood and accepted the Imam of Imam al-Jawad, and the same applies to Imam al-Hadi So everything that they went through to accept the Imam of Imam al-Jawad, 
and to consider it very clearly as an appointment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yes, he's very young, but the manner in which he conducts himself and the knowledge that he has can only mean that there's a divine intervention here, can only mean that there's a divine appointment, that what he's saying is true about himself. No different than was the case with Yahya alayhi salam, no different as with the case of Isa alayhi salam, as mentioned in the Holy Quran, right? In both of their cases. So no different than that. The same applies to Imam al-Hadi In addition to the fact that, so this is in general, that there's a recognition that the same that applied to his father is applying to him. In addition to that, we also have Imam al-Hadi himself and how he is dealing with things. So what happens right after Imam al-Jawad passes away, the Khalifa, and so by now we understand that whatever they do cannot be taken at face value. The Khalifa tells the governor over Medina to appoint the best teacher to this boy now of seven or eight years old, to appoint to him the best teacher they have in Al-Medina to teach him all of the sciences that are required. So find the best person, most suitable person, and the best, most scholarly person possible to teach him. Why? So that the Khalifa gives a very clear impression that he is very close to these family members of his. He's an Abbasid and these are his cousins, basically. And so see, the family ties are good and he is in fact taking care of the son of Imam al-Jawad So how could he have been in any way, shape or form implicated in assassinating Imam al-Jawad Here he is taking care of his family. So what was happening behind the scenes, obviously, is something more. The very clear instructions sent to the governor, Amar ibn al-Faraj, were that, first of all, the teacher cannot be known as a lover of Ahl al-Bayt or as a Shi'i, explicitly mentioned as a condition, one. And secondly, he wants to control the imam. The imam in that case had become officially kind of like you would have to be in residence. So he doesn't come or go anywhere. He is living as a student under a teacher and everything is controlled in a completely controlled environment. And so if the imam wants to do something, anything, there is complete control over the environment. That's one. And two, there's also a hope that maybe, just maybe, when we catch this person as a child, we're able to influence, we're able to put in the type of knowledge that we need to put in so that this person does not turn out like his father and his grandfather and so on and so forth. So the person who was hired to meet these criteria was a very big scholar of the day, some say the biggest scholar of the day, Al-Junaidi. So Al-Junaidi was a very big scholar who specialized in Arabic language and grammar and who would teach tafsir and Quran and who would teach Arabic rhetoric, Arabic you know, literature and grammar and other sciences. So Al-Junaidi starts to attend to, you know, seemingly teach the Imam. And people don't know what's going on behind the scenes, behind closed doors. 
So after a while, they start, when they see Al-Junaidi, they start asking him, how is the boy going? How is your student going? How is your pupil going? So Al-Junaidi said, don't say about him that he is my student or my pupil. Say about him that he is a sheikh. They said, what do you mean a sheikh? How old is he? And so, you know, in Arabic, a sheikh can refer to someone, you refer to someone that you respect a lot with the word sheikh. So it doesn't necessarily mean that someone is of old age, but it could also mean someone who has a mastery of a field. So he told them, refer to him as a sheikh. I swear that every time I came to try to teach him, this is how things began, basically. Every time I came to teach him, I saw that he knows a lot more than I do about what I am teaching him. And so, and so you could see, you know, what he is explaining. If you read the books of history, he says, I would come and I would try to teach him something about Arabic grammar. And so, you know, this is a, a mas'ala in Arabic grammar. This is how you are supposed to analyze a sentence in Arabic, for instance. He says, and before I was done, he starts telling me all of the different aspects and details of this mas'ala. And then he goes on explaining to me, these are his words, Al-Junaidi, he goes on explaining to me the differences between all the schools. So the people of Kufa use this Arabic interpreta uh, uh, grammarian interpretation here, whereas the people of Hijaz use that one. And there's a difference between the two, and so-and-so has said this, and so-and-so has said that. And then he does this with every field. And so I swear that now I continue to attend only to learn from him, because I benefit from him. And so they kept pushing him, Al-Junaidi, who spent a while, seemingly, with Imam al-Hadi as his teacher, when in the end he openly said, so remember the condition to, to be brought in as his teacher, and he openly said, this can only be through divine inter, uh, intervention. The knowledge that he has can only be knowledge given by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to someone. What he knows is not knowledge that human beings just know and especially not human beings who are living in these conditions at this age. And so this is how the Imam in living in Medina al-Munawwara, he began to be recognized as being entirely exceptional, even beyond just his small circle, let's say, of followers. Those who are already followers of Ahl al-Bayt who will take his Imama right away and accept it, this is how the Imam's reputation started to grow quickly. The Khalifa of the time dies, Al-Mu'tasab dies. Then you have the next Khalifa, Al-Mansur, and then you have Al-Wathiq. Those two also die. This brings the Imam to an age much later, in his 20s. 22 years, the Imam lived in Al-Madin Al-Munawwara in relative peace after this. He was kind of left alone. So during this time, the people actually started to gather around the Imam. They loved the Imam. And the Imam taught. He would spread knowledge. And the people who would come to him, they came to him from Persia, from Iraq, uh, elsewhere from Hijaz, and much further. So the Imam was able to teach and to spread his knowledge and to you know, do, do the work that he, do, he does and to play the role that he typically would play unencumbered during that entire time. And so this continued until, finally, the man by the name of Al-Mutawakkil became the ruler. So this is a succession of Khulafa from Bani Al-Abbas. Al-Mutawakkil was known 
to be ruthless against Ahlul Bayt filled with anger. He had a nasb unmatched in his time, very well known for that. A, a, a hatred towards Ahlul Bayt for all sorts of reasons. We're, we're told uh, there was a scholar, a Sunni scholar, and Al-Mutawakkil hears that he has narrated a report to basically praise Ahlul Bayt he reported the narration that the Holy Prophet says, I swear that I love them. He says about his daughter and Ali and their two sons. That's the narration. I love them and whoever loves them, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guarantees paradise for them. That's the narration. And so when he heard that that scholar had narrated, reported that narration, he ordered right away that he be lashed 1,000 times. So 1,000 lashes of the whip that, that <laughs> destroys someone I don't want to say kills them instantaneously it's a it's a it's a horrendous type of torture for that so they came and they really tried to explain to him that he is not a Shi'i and he is not a you know a lover of Ahlul Bayt or a follower of Ahlul Bayt this is a, a genuine scholar respected teacher and so on and so forth so he decided to lighten the torture for that, and so he brought it down to 500 lashes. Okay, so the, like, there are too many examples. If we wanted to go through Al-Mutawakkil, spend a little bit of time to see the kind of, of man that he was. So what happens is that when he comes into power, he already has that predisposition and that outlook about Ahl al-Bayt and then in addition to that, people start writing letters, especially from the area of Hijaz. They start writing letters to Al-Mutawakkil, the people who hate Ahlul Bayt and they can see how the people are gathering around Imam Al-Hadi And so they basically tell him he's a huge threat, you have to get rid of him. If you have any uh, you know, care or any attention that you want to give to Hijaz in general or Al-Madina specifically, you have to get rid of him, you have to take him out of there. The people are gathered around him and so on and so forth. And then when he appointed a new governor, and that governor wrote right away to, so this is their way to, you know, get the favors of the Khalifa. He wrote to the Khalifa telling him that the Imam receives money. And that Imam al-Hadi salam he takes that money, he uses that money to buy weapons. And he is preparing a revolution, an uprising against you, a military revolution. He wants to take over as the Khalifa. And so the Khalifa, right away, Al-Mutawakkil, uh, and when this happened, the Imam got wind that such a letter had been sent, either because they came back from the Khalifa's side to ask the Imam, or because someone else told the Imam. The Imam wrote a letter himself to Al-Mutawakkil, telling him there is no such thing and this is a pure fabrication. So Al-Mutawakkil tells him, I have heard you, I understand, uh, I'm gonna uh, basically temporarily push out from his position, the governor, and I'm going to investigate. And then he sends his, the chief of his military, Al-Mutawakkil, to come and investigate. And so when he comes right away, this chief investigator, he goes to the house of the Imam salam to look to see what is there and he says I found absolutely nothing except a copy or copies of the Holy Quran and books and there's nothing else in the house so and then he spoke to the Imam and the Imam told him there's no such thing 
have never used money to buy weapons, and so on and so forth. So the Imam was right. So he told him, the Khalifa wants to have you back, and he wants to bring you closer to him to protect you better. So of course it was not to protect him. So what happens is, and I'm going to spare you the details, inshallah, and other opportunities we have. There's a, a whole story about you know the travel, the actual travel, the, the, this chief of the military. He himself recounts the, the travel that he had with the Imam to bring the Imam from Medina to Baghdad. Baghdad being the capital of the Abbasid world at that time. So the Imam reaches a little bit later in the day, in the afternoon. Before the Imam gets you know, into the city of Baghdad, the news spreads that Imam al-Hadi is coming to Baghdad. And so the people take to the streets and they gather to greet the Imam. Some reports say that right away all of that was prevented. Others say that no, that this was allowed a little bit. So it did happen even the governor of the city of Baghdad would have come out to greet the Imam. But then right away, they told the people the Imam needs to rest. Uh, this is not the time to see the Imam. The Imam is tired. The Imam will come out to see the people tomorrow morning. So please go back. So the people accepted and they went back. So right away in that night, they took the Imam and brought him to Samarra, the city of Samarra now, at night. So that the next day when people woke up expecting the Imam, the Imam was already in another city. So the city of Samarra is not that far from Baghdad, but it's another city. And as we said at that time, it was more of a military camp. And this is where the Khalifa was at that time. And so the Imam was brought there. And so this is where the house arrest of Imam al-Hadi basically began until the end of his life. Some historians say that he was still able to move around and to talk to some people within the city. And some say, no, it was really limited to his house, but he could have visitors and he could have a back and forth and some communications. But it seems that this was not wide open and anyone could just attend. There are people who were allowed to come in and go, but it was very controlled. And so the Imam basically lived, lived the rest of, of his life in Samurra in this type of house arrest. Al-Mutawakkil, as we said, extremely ruthless. And so this showed in everything that he did to Imam al-Hadi He would humiliate the Imam. There are countless stories about that. And he had just himself, just like this rage and hatred towards Ahlul Bayt and towards the Imam. And this kept getting worse because now he was seeing how the people are around the Imam. And this might be part of it, right? It's kind of like a psychological complex of being... Uh, you know, hating someone and seeing how everybody keeps gathering around them and loving them more and, and so on and so forth. So he had multiple times tried to poison the Imam and it did not work. He jailed the Imam. So he took him out of his house arrest and he actually put him in jail more than once and brought back to his house. When the Imam could, he would continue to spread knowledge and to teach. And this is where, inshallah, this could become a a whole different uh, lecture on its own one day. But this is the entire system, the system that we know today, not its early beginnings in the time of Imam al-Baqir and Imam al-Sadiq. The system of wakala, of representation of the Imam, that's when it began. The, the wakala of Imam al-Hadi and they stay with Imam al-Askari, and they stay with Imam al-Hajjaj, at the beginning of his occultation. 
Okay, so the, this system of wakala, of representing the imam, of bringing the news of the imam, the answers of the imam to the people, so that people are no longer having direct access to the imam, this is where it's coming from. Okay, in any case. So, the love, as we said, of the people towards the imam was wide and large, to the point where there are a lot of people in the own palace of the mutawakkil who are considered lovers and perhaps even followers of Imam al-Hadi Because of Imam al-Hadi, because of what they saw from him, they loved the Imam and they followed the Imam. There are reports that the wife of al-Mutawakkil and reports that the mother of al-Mutawakkil would send certain amounts as gifts or as nidr. She would ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that if her, her prayers went answered and one of those prayers was that al-Mutawakkil got really sick and he almost died. And in fact, it's the Imam who wrote the remedy. They did not know what to do, so his wazir went and he asked and the Imam told them what to put on the, on the, the places where his body was deteriorating and he healed. And the nidr of his mother is that if he heals, she will give as a nether, gifts, monetary gifts to the imam. And so they would send money, the wife and the mother of al-mutawakkil. And then his son, in case there are some doubts, sometimes by some historians, there are some doubts on whether the wife and the mother were actually followers of the imam or not. His son, it was a clear case that al-muntasar, the son of al-mutawakkil, was a very open, explicitly open follower of Imam al-Hadi a lover of Ahl al-Bayt a Shi'i through and through, the son of al-Mutawakkil. And these are important. I don't have time to go through all of this, but these are important details. You know, sometimes we might think there's an exaggeration that the Imams are just, you know, normal people and that history has exaggerated. This is, we're talking about a man who is, you know, imagine the circumstances under which Imam al-Hadi is living. And you have someone like the son of the Khalifa, who's the greatest enemy of Imam al-Hadi who is openly, defiantly, a Shi'i, his father would refer to him as a Rafali. He would call him Ta'al Ya Rafali. He would call his son, Al-Mutawakkil would call his son Al-Muntasar, who became Khalifa afterwards. Okay, and so he would, he would call, and he would do things to try to humiliate the Imam and to anger his son because of his ideology, because of his beliefs. He would insult Fatima al-Zahra He would insult Imam Ali salam to get a reaction from his son. Okay, in any case, and this continued, and he would refer to Imam al-Hadi alayhi salam to his son. He would tell him, go ask your black god. He refers to Imam al-Hadi not as the Imam of al-Muntasar, because Imam al-Hadi alayhi salam, in some reports, was of a darker skin. And so he tells, he would refer to him in this racist, disgusting way. And he would tell him, don't, he doesn't tell him, go ask your Imam. He tells him, go ask your god. He says, go ask your black god what he thinks about some things. Okay, Ya Rafali, Ta'al, and go ask him. This is in the books of history. This is how he talked to him. In any case, unfortunately, sometimes they refer to him as Nasr al-Sunnah and, and others, the, the praise that they give to al-Mutawakkil. So in any case, this continued for a while. Al-Muntasar had enough. So with other people, and there is there are some narrations that say Imam al-Hadi prayed, that he would die within three days and he died. In any case, we'll leave that to another time. Al-Muntasar, his son, this son that is oppressed by his father, along with a few others, 
they schemed and planned and they assassinated Al-Mutawakkil and Al-Muntasar, his son, became the Khalifa and so he became the Khalifa for about six months and then after that he was killed and, and, they, and he was told by the way but in any case he was told that his life would be very short and he said I don't care if I have no days left to live if I can get to kill my father and so on so and so in any case six months after he is killed and then his son his brother eventually takes over Al-Mu'taz and Al-Mu'taz becomes the Khalifa who ends up later he also tries to poison the Imam multiple times and he does not succeed at the beginning and then at the end he does succeed and Al-Mu'taz is a copy of his father Al-Mutawakkil Al-Muntasar was the exception and so um, Imam Al-Hadi when he passes away we don't have a lot of details on exactly what happens and I would argue it's because he's under house arrest and we there are not a lot of people going in and out to know what is going on as you would have for instance with Imam Ali alayhi salam or others but what we do know is so Imam al-Hassan al-Askari alayhi salam was with him and so he performs the rituals and then the news spreads and they take the sacred body of Imam al-Hadi alayhi salam out of the house so when they see how the people gather even in the city of Samurra how the people gather to commemorate his death the ruler, the governor of, of the area, he comes, the, the chief of police comes and makes sure that nothing happens. They force the body back into the house. And that's why the body of Imam al-Hadi was buried in his house. And so the shrine of Samurra is actually the house of Imam al-Hadi And you also have the shrine of Imam al-Askari, his son, right there. Those two shrines were the house of Imam al-Hadi and Imam al-Askari who were forced to be buried there. So I'll stop here. Keeping in mind the, despite the difficulties and despite the challenges and the pressure on Imam al-Hadi you see how he was still able to, through his conduct, through his knowledge, through his wisdom, he's still able to reach the people and to make sure that the knowledge gets out and to the point where you have the people not only living in the palace, the family members of the Khalifa become followers and lovers of Imam al-Hadi alayhi salam. And so this is something to really keep in mind, inshallah, for us to better understand the lives of Ahlul Bayt alayhi salam and follow in their footsteps. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi al-tayyibin al-tahirin. So, if you um, are interested and we have a little bit of time to go back into our promised discussions as you remember the topics that we've talked about multiple times uh, having to do for instance with the minimal threshold of knowledge in today's world or what does that look like we said this is an approach that some people take that they think that if you reach a certain level of knowledge that's enough and so that on its own is a topic I'm more interested in what does it mean in today's world if there was a time ever 
where it would have been okay and it would have been acceptable to speak of a certain minimal threshold that if you meet you can say I know enough about my religion and that's sufficient what would you say about today's world and what does that look like for us you know to go through our lives what does it mean when we talk about knowledge and when we talk about aql? what does it mean based on what we've said until now that would be maybe the first question I throw at you So as you think about this, there was a question that came from the, the chat. So let me answer it and then I'll get back to you. The question is the example that we used from Imam Ali as you remember, he gave the three examples, right? The jahil, the example of the jahil is like a sakhra, is like a, a rock out of which the water never gushes, or like a tree that never turns green, or like a, a land uh, from which the vegetation never grows. And so there's no blessing and there's no good that should be expected out of this person. So the question is, you know, but if you do water a tree, it does become green, right? So would this not also work for the jahil? The short answer is, of course it would work. All you need to do is to remove the issue, the obstacle. The issue in this case, in this person, it's not by essence this person is bad or wrong or lacking anything. It's that there is jahl. We didn't get to it today. Inshallah, the next time we talk about it, we have narrations, one of the narrations from Imam al-Askari and others, that are going to address the difficulty of getting rid of habits. And that's the issue here. It's that we all agree that if you are able to remove the state of jahl from the person, then of course this person, these types of examples or parables no longer apply to this person. Of course this person is now, we can expect all sorts of good to come out of these people. But if you are stubbornly remaining in this state of jahl and you do not take any actions in the opposite direction to remove this jahl, then you are stuck in a state where even when you try, even when you are going to do good, that good does not really come out as good. It comes out as bad. And you may be doing a lot more harm than good because you are starting from a position of jahl. And you see it all around you. There are people who do atrocious things in the world just because they think that they're doing the right thing. When sometimes everyone around them, anyone who sees this can tell there's something significantly wrong with this. But the person is beginning with a, from a position of jahl. And so even when they do something and in their ideology and in their mentality, this is good and this is right, what comes out is in fact not good. It's awful. It's only negative. Inshallah, we're going to see a hadith that talk directly about this. So, to the extent, so when we apply to this, inshallah, none of us are pure jahl. Okay, so there is ilm and there is jahl. To the extent that there is jahl, the imam is saying that, to that extent, there is no good that can be expected. Our job is therefore to minimize that jahl. So that there is more good that can be expected of us. The more you work on that, the more you get rid of jahl. So can the jahil become if they remove their state of jahil or to the extent that they get rid of their jahil? 
then those conditions or those outcomes are not to be expected. Very good question. So now let's come back to our discussion. Yeah, it's fun. If we say that we live uh, in an information society where there is constantly new information being produced, there is constantly new objections to religion being produced, and there is constantly even the religious sciences are being advanced, where there are new theories to the religion, which is not static, you know, it's dynamic. And if, if we know that this is continuously evolving, I don't see how we can say that there's any room for have a set of threshold for knowledge. If that knowledge can change, then it may not be valid anymore. So I think just from that alone, we can say that we continuously need to learn. And we can't just stop at one point and say this is enough. Maybe in the sense that I have foundations of my faith, but, uh, but I, I think we still continuously need to learn more from there. I actually have a question about that too. But there's a uh, with all the hadith they're giving you, uh, they're equating what jahad uh, gives or makes or what it is. Um, so we can take, uh, let's say, the seventh creed, you try to be able to overcome some of these things, and you're overcoming parts of uh, jahad to a certain degree. But the question is, is there, are you ever, is there a threshold where you're ever not a jahad? and become a hakim or, or no, because if, if you know that you don't know, then, then you'll know. But if, if you don't know that you think you know, you'll, you'll never know. Oh, sorry, if you, if you think you know, then you'll never know. So is there, is there like, are, are we always jahil? But it's like, even those three things, like, like Hassan and, and the other things, yeah, it, it's not black and white. It's not, it's not you either are or aren't, there's degrees to it. So maybe just, you're less jahil, but you're never not a jahil. Is that true? Or? So the notion of jahil and, and its opposite of knowledge, they're relative. Relative means basically, first of all, which field are you talking about? And this is where I want to come back to your point. Which field are you talking about? Because you may have a lot more knowledge in one field than another. That's one. And then two, what are you comparing it to? If you're comparing it to an infinite knowledge, then of course, of course you are jahan. There's only jahan. The more you know, the more you realize you know nothing. But that's the wisdom behind it, so that you know your place and you keep moving in a certain direction. If you compare it to people who don't know, then of course you have ilm. Where I think it's going to help us is, inshallah, in the future lectures. Just like today, we began with some of the characteristics of the person who is jahil. We're going to go back and provide the characteristics given to us about the person who has ilm and the person who applies aql. And this is going to be, inshallah, the positive aspect of what we're talking about. Because today it's a negative one. It's a scary one. Right? So when we apply to these, when we apply these to ourselves, we see, okay, that's the jahil, how much of these do I have? So it's all jahil. Okay, and it's scary. On the other side, when we, inshallah, go through the aql, the behavior, 
the character traits of the person who is applying reason. And we'll see that, oh, actually we have a lot of these already, and we're working on those few, and those, okay, maybe they're a weakness we need to focus on more. You'll see that, inshallah, we also have a lot of aql. And so the idea is never going to be, you know, we are bad and we are, you know, uh, having a defeatist attitude that this is hopeless and it's not worth trying. No, absolutely not. It's the, this is supposed to be identifying openly, transparently our weaknesses. That's kind of the first step. You recognize, as you said, you have to know that you don't know. And then you can work on it. And the jahl can also be on the side of aql, where maybe there is too much foolishness and lack of judgment and lack of wisdom, and we need to apply more of it and be more thorough and more deep in our outlook on life. And if that is the case, then that's it. We just move in that direction. And that's what I keep saying. At the end of the day, if we recognize on both sides, the way is infinite. You can go down infinitely, and you can go up infinitely. So you're never there. You're there when you die. Wherever you happen to be when you die, that's, when, that's where you are at. And until you die, you are actually never there. But you're walking in a certain direction. That's all we're trying to do. It's that the walking you're doing is going in the right direction. If you're going in the wrong direction, as we will see, inshallah, we're probably going to end with this hadith from Imam Sadiq salam. It doesn't matter how fast you're going, if you're going in the wrong direction. We are trying to make sure we understand the direction first, and then once we know, then we can move. And then to each, and their ability, and their effort, and their, you know, the energy that they're willing to invest to move in that direction. Are you ever out of a jahl? It depends. But inshallah, when you're going to take off a lot of the traits, the character traits of the aql, you'll see that you have been on the way, on the right way, on the right path for a while. Just the idea that you sit and think and do this tafakkur and self-assessment and self-reflection and to be critical and open and honest with yourself that there are weaknesses I need to work on, there are strengths that I don't have, I need to get better at, inshallah, this is already a step in that direction. But to go back to your question, which was an excellent point that you made about feeling that given in today's world how quickly things are changing that we constantly need to be in a learning mode what if I, I play the devil's advocate or I challenge you a little bit and I say that they, there is something called the infodemic an infodemic going on right now there's basically just too much information. It's impossible to know. There used to be a time when to be a philosopher also meant that you're also an astronomer and a doctor, and there were like six books, and you study them in depth, and you know them inside out, and that's kind of human knowledge at its peak. You know, if you go back a thousand or whatever years old, uh, years in the past. And now today, there's probably 30 to 50 different specializations in psychology, for instance, as one field. And how many fields are there out there? So if you want to be moving in that direction, what does that mean? Given that, I completely agree with you. One, knowledge is changing. Two, I want to add another component, which is there's this deluge. There's this avalanche, uncontrollable, 
outpouring of data and information and science and knowledge coming at us and it's just you know humanly impossible to keep track of everything going on in all the fields just to keep track not to learn it so therefore now what it's the idea that we just just randomly jump around trying to learn everything we can about everything so what does what would that look like in today's world if we recognize that there is this type of rapid change combined with the amount of information that is coming our way what what would you do in that case how do you approach how do you tackle Anyone wants to react to that? I think this causes a problem. Like, you see that too, like, that influx of information is horrible. Because we have to set priorities to uh, certain things, but now you've been seeing information on how to breathe right, how to, the stuff we're drinking, uh, like, how to sleep right. And like each one of these are different knowledge. Like are you to be an expert? It's because like if you're ignorant about it, it's whatever you can focus on, whatever you're focused on. But once you know a little bit about it, it's like okay, um, there's definitely something wrong with the way we're doing this thing. So like you now delegate my time towards it or not? And it's it's a it's a juggle of the, or the dilemma of balancing your time to what you are to, to look into and what's more important. What you should focus on or not. Yeah, and um, to add a little more on what Ali said, uh, and uh, you said, um, I believe we have to categorize what exactly is our focus. You know, I really like the idea that the Quran emphasizes on how can we be useful to our society, and I, I think this is a great uh, um, idea. Um, but then, like you said, there is a lot of information out there. It's good to focus on one thing, but uh, then what about all the other things, right? I think if we uh, we have to categorize our um, endeavor towards knowledge into two uh, categories, one being general and one being specialization. So one being we, ha we have to have general knowledge about everything finance, economy, engineering, psychology. We have to have a minimum on all these things. But then if there is a specific field where, okay, this is where I think I can excel into and I can really, really help, whether it's my family, my society, my community. Okay, I'm going to know about all these things, but I'm going to really know about that one thing. I think this is the approach that we really need to take to understand how everything is also connected in the world. Because if we get to learn only one thing, then 
that's not really um, the point. The point is to know uh, all the knowledge, uh, and 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 all knowledge is connected to one another. So again, it comes back to the same idea of categorizing uh, general and specialization. You think? I think that that's a very good point because you have to like it's more of a more of a team issue rather than an individual. Let's work together as a society. So it's when when everybody's specializing in different things that, in theory, we're tackling all the issues at once. But it's still like we're working, like right now, we're getting all that information individually, which is it is to me a problem at least. I don't, I don't know. But I, I see a lot of uh, like recently, and this is something I really liked the last lecture and kind of gave me different outlook on the whole series but you have and this is there's been attack on religion for a long time but it's a lot more rampant as well recently but it's like uh, uh, one of the very nice things to have as a human being is uh, and a luxury is, is freedom in different ways but uh, I see it's like I see a lot of quotes of let's say every you're born free until um, the the culture, religion, and whatever it is, also society puts their shackles on the same thing. But uh, basically, um, they, what I, from la last week's um, uh, lecture, change of uh, view I had on it was because if you don't have uh, it, 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 the Islam is a is a not is a is a religion. It is a knowledge revolution. So the, your freedom comes from knowledge, and it's it's more the more knowledge you have is, is the more base you give yourself to, to be able to, to maneuver through life. So it's more it is the answer to freedom rather than the, 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 the shackles, because when if and it doesn't have to be so whatever it is you have a base of, then you're able to move better forward with it because. Uh, if you don't have a, a, a base, you're gullible to anything. And with all the influx of information we're getting, you are going to be susceptible to something, one way or another. But um, that, that to me, was a, was, was, a, was a great statement, the knowledge revolution, because it's, it's uh, being more knowledgeable in, in most aspects of life will make you less jahil in terms of the characteristics, even the foolishnesses or so on, is, is very uh, rampant. But uh, usually with younger people, and as you grow, because you're gaining more knowledge, you become less of that. But uh, not all, all, all times, but most times. But you have uh, um, in uh, uh, it, it. I feel like it, it's the cure and the answer, and the why that why I call it freedom is because it's a. a it's certainty in, in in place of uncertainty, and gives you knowledge on how to how to move things, and it tackles all the issues of uh, that the things that might give you insecurities or or shortcomings in your life is with that with that knowledge revolution. My thoughts on last week's. It's very good. Thank you. So if I if I uh, yes, go ahead. No, go ahead.
Excellent points. Thank you so much. And I don't disagree with any of them. Um, I'll try to wrap it up and leave you with an open-ended question. I think it's prayer or almost prayer. So uh, I leave you with this. The idea that there's a lot of knowledge to be learned. So where do we focus? Inshallah, it will become clearer and clearer exactly like you said. Islam wants us to know enough about everything. That's one. And the reason, the why, simply because everything is connected. So the difference is what's enough. So you can't go and get a PhD in economics, but you have to have a minimum understanding of how the economic system works to live in this world because it will have an impact on every other aspect. Okay, that's one. So we need to know a little bit about everything. Specialization is required, absolutely. It's recommended, good. But then you guys added another layer, but you presented it as a problem. So inshallah, what opens up to, we need to think about it as we need to come up with a solution to this, which is how should we approach and think about specialization? You said it's a problem because people are getting the knowledge one-on-one. -on -one. And you mentioned that there's almost like a society thing where you have specialization and you need a lot of things for people to specialize in, but you're highlighting the problem that people are receiving their, their education or their knowledge or their awareness on an individual basis. So what needs to happen? How do we turn this into a solution? Okay, so this is the open-ended question. And I leave you with this, the only layer that I was going to add today, but we didn't have time to get a lot of the ahadith, but we already mentioned it. When we talked about how the person who has who is ignorant, is not going to like the things that the Hakim is appreciating, the person who has wisdom. What about another Hakim? Are they going to appreciate what that Hakim is enjoying and finding comfort in or not? Short answer, yes, they are. Like attracts like. So yes, maybe there's a lot happening at an individual level, but maybe there's a way to find efficiencies and become a lot more effective, especially if there are social impacts to this. There are impacts that are beyond the individual that I think you guys are itching at. Okay, so inshallah, all of this is going to come out naturally in the verses of the Quran and the narrations, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to show you that your own thinking about this is going in the same direction. 
And you'll see that this is exactly what our religion is talking about, what needs to happen. Okay, so I think it's prayer time. Inshallah, you found this uh, beneficial, and we continue next time, inshallah.